Time to grab your Bibles that I know that you brought with you. At least I hope you did. Uh, We're going to start a new book study today, uh, the book of uh, Hebrews. So if you'll turn to the book of Hebrews, we'll get there in just a quick minute. Just um, uh, allow me to mention a couple of things. I'm sorry to have to do this again. I think you probably get tired of it. But um, guys, the problem is not that we left our culture. Our culture left us. We, um, we've got this thing coming in early February with Rosario, Rosaria about sexuality because of the Supreme Court making its decision this past summer. But there was another Supreme Court decision about 45 years ago called Roe v. Wade. Um, it, you've got to be you know, my age to remember it probably, but it was when uh, the Supreme Court allowed or legalized abortion. And so every year on this Sunday, we've been trying to set aside at least a reminder to tell you of the sanctity of life, that um, this is a scourge in our country. Uh, It is is not to be uh, spun uh, in such a way that makes it good. It is murder. You know, it, it seems to me that one of the classic illustrations of just how upside down our culture is, is, uh, is this example. These, these folks went in and videoed uh, the sale of um, body parts and saw the crassness of these people who are selling body parts. And now our culture has found a way to make them the bad guy and turn it upside down so that now they're being sued for their bad thing that they did. Guys, that's the culture in which we find ourselves, where good is called evil and evil is called good. Um, Let me say it again very clearly and forthrightly, abortion is murder. And we stand against it as best we can. Uh, But this Sunday is, in particular, we we remind you. We remind you of that scourge that exists and um, that your church is in the ongoing battle uh, to try and overturn it. We also want women to know that the message of pro-life is not anti-women. In fact, it's very pro-women. In fact, if you were to come to my office and hear some of the stories that I get to hear of the damage that this has wrought, then you would agree with me. The pro-life message is pro-women, not anti. So just a thought um, to think on this Sanctity Sunday, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Now, guys, let me read my text. It comes from Hebrews chapter 1. We begin, as I said, a a study of this book. I'm going to read only the first three verses because, very honestly, that's all we've got time for, and and I think you'll see that as we go. It reads like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this, This endures forever. 
Guys, um, in, in, in the past, in the recent past, you have heard me make a great deal, a big point about the power, the unique power of stories. Uh, I, I've told you that, um, I mean, because I believe that, we studied the book of Ruth, which was a story. We studied the book of Nehemiah, which was a story. We studied the book of Esther, that was a story. Even the, the book of Job we studied, and it too is a story. I, I pointed out that, you remember when, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and God sent Nathan the prophet in to see David, and it was the use of a story that God used to reel David in back to a position of repentance. I've told you that Jesus is a master storyteller, and you see it in his, um, in his parables, the, the, the genius behind those parables, those, those stories. I'll let you in even on a, a little preacher secret. The, uh, the easiest passages in the Bible to preach are those historical narratives or stories, stories like um, Daniel in the lion's den or David and Goliath or, or Elijah on top of Mount Carmel fighting the prophets of Baal. Those are, the, those are not, not because the sermons are so good, but because they're stories. And stories have a unique power all their own. Now, <clears throat> I I say all of that to say this. The book of Hebrews is not a story. It's an argument. It's a presentation. It is, in essence, a defense. The author of the book of Hebrews, and, and let me pause right there just to mention quickly, who is the author of the book of Hebrews? Well, Luther said it was Apollos. Spurgeon said it was um, Paul. Very honestly, guys, we don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is, but we do know this. We know the audience to whom the author writes. Uh, He's writing to the Hebrews. (laughs) He's writing to Jews. He's writing to converted Jews who were probably living at Rome at at the time. And, And because of persecution that had arisen, these converted Jews are, are thinking uh, that the best way to eliminate persecution in their lives is to go back to Judaism. And so the author of the, uh, of the book of Hebrews is trying to point out the absurdity of their returning to Judaism, that, 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 that those thoughts are unthinkable. So the point that he makes with this book, and he makes it in various ways, numerous times throughout the book, He's really making the same point, and that point is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And and because Jesus and, and, and his work is so vastly superior to anything that Judaism can offer, <clears throat> to go back to Judaism is a, is a flight into the absurd. It's a leap into insanity. In some ways, you you can think of the book of Hebrews as a brief book of Christian apologetics because he's, he's using it as an argument to present the superiority of Christ in the Christian position. So my dear brother and sister in Christ, you can brace yourself for three or four dozen sermons on the same point. made in numerous different ways, and that point being 
the superiority of Christ in the Christian position. Now, I, I know that you prefer, um, you would prefer to hear a series of sermons on um, uh, Christian marriage or uh, parenting or, um, or maybe even eschatology out of the book of Revelation. Ooh. Or maybe you could preach Jimmy on, on forgiveness or, or envy or something like that. But ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you this, that the deepest longings of the soul are only satisfied through fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. Guys, you know that this Bible of ours, it calls Jesus bread. You knew that. John 6. Uh, Do you know that it also calls Jesus water? Jesus Christ is the bread and the water of the soul because there's nothing that satisfies the soul like communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. You know, there's a scene in John 16 where Jesus is is telling the 12 in the upper room, he's telling them about the arrival of the other comforter that's going to come, the Holy Spirit. And he says, here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. When the Holy Spirit gets here, here's what he's going to do. The Holy Spirit's entire ministry is to point you to me. So, ladies and gentlemen, where there is much of Christ, there is much of the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing. So, let me, let me just remind you that the audience is, is a, it's a, he's aiming this at Hebrews, at Jews, converted Jews, which explains why so much of the book, of the book of Hebrews, has to be read with, with Old Testament glasses on. You've got you've to read it through this Old Testament lens. So gang, as, as we begin, let me say this clearly. There is so much in here, or there's several places in here, that are just way over my head. It's not that they're way over my head to understand them. I can understand them, and so can you. They're way over my head in trying to appropriately and adequately communicate them. And you're going to see one of those in our text for this morning. Okay. So the text opens up like this. Or the book opens up like this. Who is this Jesus Christ who you're saying is so superior? Well, first of all, he is God's final word to us. Did you, did you notice how the, how the text opens? It says, now uh, long ago, uh, in many ways, God spoke to us uh, in the, in and through the prophets. Every Jew know, knew about Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. Well, long ago, uh, and in many various ways, God used to speak to us that way. But now, he speaks to us through his son. Um, He is the final word. Oh, no, there used to be lots of ways that God spoke to us, but now... Do you, do you see the contrast in, the, in verse 1 between the many ways and the one way? Christ is, is now the, the better than the ways that he used to speak to us. He's not just another medium. He is the, the 
final word. That's the way John describes you. Remember that in, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Now God is communicating to us in his final way through his word. This is not a silent God. This is a talking God. A silent God, you see, is an unknowable God. But deity is talking. Deity is not speechless. He used to speak to us like that, but now he's speaking to us in his, this, his final way through his word, through his son. Jesus Christ is the final word. Now guys, from there, the text goes on to give us five Five ways that Jesus qualifies to be the final word. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, what we are about to enter. One author called Nosebleed Christology. This stuff is over the top, ladies and gentlemen. It is describing for us the ways or the things that qualify Jesus to be the final word. Here's the first one. He qualifies by being God's son. That's what verse 1 says. He has spoken to us through his son. Now, gang, I realize that that might not move you very much. Well, I mean, we've heard all our lives that, that, that Jesus is God's son. You know, I, um, I know that doesn't, that doesn't um, connect many dots for you. But let me show you something that I hope will. Now, I'm only going to do this one time in my sermon. I'm going to ask you to flip to one other passage. I want you to see this, and I want, you to, I want all of you to go there with me to John chapter 5, if you can. I want you to see it yourself, and this is the only time I'll do this all morning long. But it's in John chapter 5. I want to show you something about the significance of this thing, son. Okay? It's in John 5, verse 18. You're there? John 5, 18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. Oh, that's bad. We got to kill him. He's breaking the Sabbath. But even worse than that, he was even calling God his own father. Look, look, look. Making himself... Equal with God. Guys, when the, when, the, when the Bible claims that Jesus Christ is God's son, that may not register to you or to us. But it registered to this audience. It registered to the Hebrews. To say that he is God's son is to stake a claim that he is equal with God, that Jesus and God are equal. The co-equals of Jesus and God. Do you remember, guys, that, that, that event in the New Testament called the Transfiguration? Do you remember that? When Jesus goes on the top of a mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and, and he's transfigured before their very eyes. And there, up on the top of that mountain, shows up uh, Moses and Elijah. And as that story comes to an end, heaven speaks. Remember that? And heaven speaks and says, almost exactly this, but I'm going to add a little bit. Um, heaven speaks and says, 
yeah, 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 I know that Moses and Elijah are there, and they're good. But then it goes on and says, but this is my son. Listen to him. You see, he qualifies to be, he qualifies to be listened to. Because he is God's son. Guys, there's another event in, um, oh, it's in John 14. Uh, the last hours of Jesus' life, and Philip comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, listen, I got, I, I got one, just one small request of you before you go. Uh, one other thing I'd like for you to do, if you don't mind. And Jesus, oh, okay, well, what is that? He says, well, uh, Jesus, could you do this? Could you show us the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you still don't get it? Philip, don't you understand that he who has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father? You see, ladies and gentlemen, the first thing that qualifies Jesus to be the final word from God is that he is God's co-equal. He is his son. That's the first thing. And then if you'll notice in your text, it goes on from there, and it says there's something else that qualifies him to be the final word. It says, um, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir. The heir of all things. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when you're the son, that makes you the heir. Everything that belongs to the father is now the heirs. Jesus claimed that in, in the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. He says, all things that have been, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It is a claim to proprietorship, ladies and gentlemen. Moses can't say that. Elijah can't say that. The angels can't say that. But he can say that. Because you see, he's the son. And the son is obviously the heir. The heir of all things. Which is the second thing that qualifies him to be God's final word. But it goes on from there. There's a third thing. Did you see it? And through whom he created all things. He's the creator. And if that might take you aback just a little bit, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the only place where you find Jesus being referred to as the creator or through whom God created. It's in Colossians 1. It's in John 1. And it's found here that Jesus is the creator. Now, guys, I, I, for one, love to think of Jesus this way because if he created this, then he can also create in me a clean heart. You know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's common knowledge. I, I think it's, everybody would agree about this, that the smartest man that lives today is, is a man whose name is Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking... Um, uh, sought or set out to um, measure the width of our galaxy. Here's how he did it. Do you know how fast light travels? 
Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> that's, that's moving. 186,000 miles per second. And a light year is how far light travels in a calendar year. So here's how you can measure it. A light year is take all the seconds in a calendar year, find out what that is, and then multiply it by 186,000 miles. And then Stephen Hawking says that our galaxy, and there's more than one galaxy in the universe, that our galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. And this text is claiming that Jesus created it all. And that means he also created us. So, so he's the son, he's the heir, he's the creator. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the next thing that this text says is the thing that I was referring to a few minutes ago is absolutely over my head. Look at it. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Now, gang, I could spend your time uh, by trying to impress you with my understanding of Greek words. And I could tell you what each one of those Greek words means and yada, 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 but I really think it would confuse you and it would waste your time. But let me simply say it like this. Everything that God is, Jesus is too. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Everything that he is, Everything that God is, Jesus is. Now again, guys, this might not register to us, but when the author of the Hebrews says to this Jewish audience, he is the radiance of the glory of God, they knew exactly what the author was referring to. And in their little heads, the immediate notion that would pop in there is the notion of the Shekinah glory of God. And those little Jewish hearts would leap as they were told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory. That's exactly what you kind of was. And then there's one more thing. That's number four. There's another. He also upholds the universe by the word of his power. (laughs) You know what that refers to? The theological term is providence. All of the ins and outs of my life, day to day, all of the details of my life, he upholds them. Guys, if he upholds all things, then he can also uphold my poor trembling heart. Folks, have you ever heard of the anthropic principle? The anthropic principle is a, is a principle in the scientific community which says this, that the planet Earth was created with man in mind. It was created so that man could occupy it. It is exactly 
uh, design so that we can occupy it. And there's several features, I'm like 45 or 21 or whatever it is, features that are exactly necessary for us to live here. For instance, the distance between the earth and the sun. We can't be any closer because we'd burn up. We can't be any further because we'd freeze. It's exactly right. Or the, um, the percentage of oxygen in the air versus the percentage of nitrogen in the air. It's exactly right. It's got to be exactly where it is or because we would have... But it's, 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 it's got to be just like it is so that we can live here. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know who upholds the percentage of oxygen in the air versus nitrogen? The one who is the final word from God to us. He upholds all things. Five things given in this brief text that qualifies him to be God's final word to us. That's who he is. He's the son. He's the heir. He's the creator. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things. And then from there the text goes on. It goes on to tell us what he did. And notice what, what it says. Um, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did Jesus visit this planet? So that he could teach? So that he could tell stories? No, ladies and gentlemen. He came to make purification for sin. Sins. My sins. And guys, that Greek participle right there is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense in the Greek means that it was an action that was begun and completed in the past. Purification was made for my sin before I ever committed it. Purification was made for sin back when Jesus died. And then having done that, we're told that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Um, Before I make my best effort at trying to explain that, you know there's a statement in Isaiah chapter um, 38, I believe. Isaiah 38 says, that God has cast our sins behind his back. Tell me, where is God's back? You see, if, if God is omnipresent, his back is nowhere. And that's exactly where he has cast our sins. Into nowhereness. And then having made that purification, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Two quick things. First of all, notice where he sat. He sat at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat in the position of cosmic authority. He sat there as the one who now rules and reigns over the cosmic order. He sits at the right hand. Okay, that's where, but you also need to see this. He sat down. 
Now, guys, you're going to see that theme, that same thing said five or six times in the book of Hebrews. It may not mean much to us. It may not grab you. But I can assure you that the audience to which this author is writing, when they heard it, they were impacted. And here's why. Guys, in Judaism, there was the temple where all the animal sacrifices took place. In that temple, there was no furniture included in there so that a priest could sit down. There was no chair in temple furniture. There was no stool. There was no bench. There was none of that. Because, you see, the work of the priest was never done. It was never completed. It was never appropriate for an Old Testament priest to ever go into the temple and sit down. Because there was work always to be done. But after Jesus had made purification for sin, he sat down because his work was done. Mission accomplished. Take a seat. When this priest performs his sacrifice, the work was completed. And so he sits down. Guys, by now, Your your head ought to be spinning. Did you get all this? No, I didn't think you would. Any nosebleeds out there? I understand. Guys, this is nosebleed Christology. Let, let, let Let me make a couple of quick applications, then I'm done. First of all, the one that I preach, the one that we preach, the one that we offer you, the one that we point you to, the one that, we, that is offered to us in the gospel is God in flesh. Equally God, this Jesus is divine. He, um, he upholds everything He has all things in his hand. You know, we used to sing that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. The one that I offer you, week after week, is God in flesh, who has done everything necessary to save you. Such that he could sit down and thus he is God's climactic word
Tell me, is your heart so hard that none of that moves you? Let me add this too, since we have been spending some time over these matters on Wednesday night. For you to sit idly by while your kids are being taught that Jesus is only a messenger from God and that he is inferior to Muhammad. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a cosmic crime. that you shouldn't stand for for another nanosecond. I'll tell you a little story and I'm done. It comes from one of my Puritan brothers. You know, I'm, I'm a 21st century Puritan. Um, but one of the, uh, the old Puritans was uh, visiting one of his church members who was dying on his deathbed, last few hours of his life. And um, he said to his church member, Sir, can you trust your soul to Jesus Christ? And his reply was this. Pastor, if I had a million souls... I could trust them all to Jesus Christ because this is who he is. Our Father, Would you um, forgive us that our hearts have grown cool Um, to the the fact that we believe that we, we are in union with a Savior who is the very exact imprint of your nature. He is God in flesh. And to see him is to see the Father. The, um, the creator, the upholder, the one who made purification for sins. Oh God, there's not much more that we can say about him. So would you give me utterance to try and point to him over and over again as did this author so that these people and countless others like them might see of the superiority of Christ and his work over against all else. Oh God, if you have led people here this morning who have not yet seen him in his beauty, open their eyes to see who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for sinners. Do that, Father. 
for your own glory's sake. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.